When we talk about the Trinity, one of the first things we have to say is we're not speaking of the persons as individuals, individual centers of consciousness and will. This is the one simple and undivided essence that subsists in these persons. Now, that said, with simplicity underlined, highlighted, circled, <laughs> uh, put in bold, uh, at that point, we can properly then also understand what distinguishes the persons. And they are very, very emphatic. There is one thing, one thing alone, that distinguishes the persons in, in Scripture. And I, I just alluded to it a minute ago. We might call these eternal relations of origin. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. My name is Ronnie Kurtz, and for today's episode, I have the privilege of being your host as your usual host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, has flipped to the other side of the podcast table and will field questions today instead of asking them. For you regular listeners, Dr. Barrett needs no introduction. But for those new to the Credo Podcast, Dr. Matthew Barrett serves as Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and is the founder and executive editor of Credo Magazine. Moreover, Dr. Barrett has written a number of theological volumes, including None Greater, The, Undomesticate, the Undomesticated Attributes of God, Canon, Covenant, and Christology, Rethinking Jesus and the Scriptures of Israel, God's Word Alone, The Authority of Scriptures, and many more, including the forthcoming book that we will be discussing in this episode, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and the Spirit, forwarded by Scott Swain and published by Baker Books. As always, it is great to be with you, Dr. Barrett. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and I'm really excited to, to talk about this book. Yeah, thanks for uh, flipping to the other side of the table and uh, fielding some questions for oh, us. Thank you. <laughs> well, hey, let's jump right into it because uh, your book is packed with um, worthwhile conversation pieces. And so at the time of this recording, uh, the book is still forthcoming. And I would love to hear just from the very beginning, just how this book came to be. Why a book on the Trinity and why a book on the Trinity now? Yeah. Well, you, some of our listeners may know if they're familiar with uh, the last book, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. Uh, in that book, I try to open our eyes uh, just to the disturbing mm -hmm. uh, reality that uh, we really approach God in a way that domesticates him, that uh, assumes uh, that he's just like us, just a bigger, better version. And so I continue that investigation, if we can call it that, <laughs> uh, that uh, quest, but this time into the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, as anyone will be able to tell as soon as they open the book, um, well, things get it pretty dicey pretty quick. <laughs> uh, because if there's any doctrine where uh, domestication uh, or manipulation has uh, history, especially yeah. in the last, I don't know, 100 years in particular. It's the doctrine of the Trinity in particular. You know, I, I guess to, to answer your question, I have to go way back. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'm getting a little bit old now, but I have to go way back to when I first started learning theology. 
and uh, way back into my when I first started college, actually. And uh, during that time, I'm so thankful for so many who uh, pointed me in the right direction, told me what books to read, helped to answer theological questions uh, that I was wrestling with and so on. But uh, as I was introduced to some of my first contemporary systematic theologies, um, so I'm not here talking about, you know, theological works of the, of the past, you know, but uh, contemporary systematic theologies. At the time, it really was two. Uh, we're, we're so blessed today. We, you know, in the 21st century now, we have so many. But at that time, there really wasn't much in terms of contemporary systematics. It was essentially uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology and then Millard Erickson's mm-hmm. systematic theology. And so, of course, you know, I dived into both of them. And um, it, didn't, it, it wasn't long until I realized something was off. Uh, mm. Something really was off. Um, first, the first thing I noticed was the Trinity was presented in such a formulaic way. Yeah. Um, s- sort of, you know, adding up the verses to show the deity of each person, uh, qualifying that, you know, the Scripture says God is one, and then at some point you have to take that leap to to Nicene language to say uh, God's, you know, one essence, three persons, and um, you kind of leave it at that. Uh, the, but you know, I had an early interest in history, and mm. so um, I started to, to realize, uh, goodness, not not only is this um, seem uh, out of step with just how we how how Scripture presents the Trinity, but also how we how we experience the Trinity. So mm. you know, as I reflected on just my own reception of the gospel, it was Trinitarian through and through. Uh, as I uh, was you know born again and. Uh, granted faith and repentance by the Holy Spirit who um, opened my eyes to to Christ and and uh, not just his work but his person and ultimately uh, so that I could be adopted uh, by grace into uh, the, the family of God and approach uh, the Father's throne uh, in, in in mercy mm-hmm. um, but then when you turn to these presentations, Trinity, none of that, it was all absent. Mm. And then, and then to kind of, you know, uh, you know, the flip side of this coin is, uh, I also started to notice that, well, this doctrine of eternal generation, you know, that you see in older translations of the Bible and older, older treatments of uh, the Trinity or systematics as a whole, was just not there. Yeah. It, it was just missing. And, um, that didn't feel right. Mm. It didn't feel right. If I at the time, you know, as a student, you're trying to figure out what's what, what's happening here, and but but uh, you you sort of have that turn in your stomach, <laughs> um, and uh, you thought, well, uh, what about the the Nicene Creed or the you know you would recite the Apostles' Creed, but eventually the Nicene Creed, and think, well, uh, so much of this seems to be missing from the conversation. Um, and of course, uh, as I kept reading, I realized uh, it wasn't just missing. There was a certain suspicion, mm-hmm. um, sometimes a wholesale rejection uh, from different theologians at the time. Um, but uh, as I continued uh, to just uh, dive deeper into the Trinity, there was another uh, discovery that uh, was a bit was in some sense even more unsettling, and it's this. Um, as I started to just read book after book on the doctrine of the Trinity, I discovered that the Trinity had been in many ways redefined. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just such a, a huge contrast between just the way the Trinity was approached and described by the fathers and uh, both patristic, medieval, and you know, reformational, 
and the way that the, the best theologians of the 20th century, uh, modern theologians, as well as some evangelical theologians, were describing the Trinity. Um, they were describing the Trinity in social categories. Um, the Trinity um, was assumed to be some sort of society. Mm. And in the strongest uh, versions of this, uh, the, per- the, the emphasis was certainly not on something like divine simplicity. Uh, sometimes that was even shamed or you know, shown, <laughs> shown the door you know, out of the room. Um, but uh, at the very least, there was uh, an emphasis on the persons uh, instead. And, but it wasn't just uh, an emphasis on the persons. It was a certain type of emphasis that said, uh, well, we need to actually uh, define or redefine personhood more in terms of relationships and roles um, and functionality. And oftentimes there was the uh, connecting the line directly over to a human uh, society. Uh, There seemed to be an assumption more or less that, well, um, how we experience relationships in our human societies in various forms, um, yes, it's a little bit different, but essentially the core of that is what we are seeing in the Trinity. What scared me, though, was not just the redefinition of the Trinity as social, and, and I should also mention here, we can get into this, but um, you know, w- with a human society, you have individuals. Um, and so with some of these authors, I started noticing, uh, especially with modern theologians in particular, um, we can talk about some of those later, but uh, I started noticing some of them went so far to say the persons of the Trinity are their own center of consciousness yeah, and will, that's right. which of course raises the question of, well, are there multiple wills in the Trinity? Um, are these, are these uh, separate individual agents, you know, and, and those type of discussions. And, um, but all that to say that the, the next thing is what scared me. And that was not just these, you know, technical discussions and definitions, but uh, realizing that not only was the Trinity redefined in social categories, but it was then used uh, for just about every social yes. agenda under the sun. That's right. And I know listeners will think, oh, aren't you exaggerating? <laughs> Read the book. I am not. That's right. I, You're I'm, not. I'm not exaggerating, I promise you. And I've read the books, I, I, uh, <laughs> so I can say this with, you know, um, an academic good conscience, uh, but uh, it's endless. Uh, yeah. Just to give, you know, I'm just going to throw out some examples here, and uh, you know, those who are more in the academic world will probably know exactly who I'm talking about. But um, uh, just to throw out some examples, uh, you know, I would dis- read one set of books and and discover that um, uh, the Trinity was was now the master plan for politics, yep. and uh, you had certain individuals just. Just one example, there are many, but uh, one example, you know, uh, using the, you know, they would say things like, we need to get away from monotheism. Uh, that's a bad, dirty word. Um, we need to uh, see the, the persons of the Trinity as a society. Um, and on that basis, then we have uh, the type of um, social type of society uh, that, that we should follow in, in our own human experience. Some of them would go into the direction of socialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, others, and that's just one political example. You'd have others in politics who would say, "Oh, I want to use a social training too, but for a different political." Yeah, agenda. that's right. <laughs> um, then, then you had you had others uh, who would, uh, interesting, 
interestingly enough, take the social trinity in an ecumenical direction as their you know master plan for uniting the religions. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, well, if the person of the trinity can get along, then um, we we can create some type of paradigm here for cooperation. Yeah. Between religious groups, uh, others, uh, and it just at this point it just gets uh, so fascinating to put it nicely. But um, others would go so far to say, "Oh, well, perhaps uh, a social trinity can can be transfigured for the sake of ecology." Mm-hmm. And I thought, "Well, I didn't know the trinity could be so green." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in which uh, you start matching certain trinitarian heresies to um, you know. Uh, uh, certain views of uh, nature and, and creation um, or abuses of creation. Uh, others w- would go even further into, and this certainly has relevance, uh, ongoing relevance today, uh, they, they would go further into uh, gender discussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some wanting to use the Trinity for justification for equality among the sexes. Um, and, uh, or, or, you know, a, a type of egalitarian trinity for an egalitarian society. And, and, and uh, there you start to see that the, the trinity really takes on a strong feminist agenda. Uh, others would, would swing that pendulum to the other side mm-hmm. and say, well, we actually want to use uh, the trinity too for gender discussions. But uh, and, and in this case, uh, this is where uh, some evangelicals have gone. Um, we want to introduce hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if there's uh, a social hierarchy in the Trinity and roles, then we can apply that to gender as well, both in society, in the church, and in uh, and in the family. And and so then you have a social Trinity used for you know complementarian agenda. Um, some would go further. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm going to stop here because I could just keep going on. But some <laughs> would go further in uh, using the Trinity. Uh, there's you can find um, the, these. Uh, this group out there as well, using a social trinity to to then argue for homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, there the argument is actually not that different um, by by looking to roles uh, in the trinity in which um, they they argue, well, there's no um, there's 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 a certain type of equality uh, between the persons. Well, from that point, they then argue that um, there's an equality uh, between different sexual orientations. Mm-hmm. I, I could go on and on yeah. and on. It's just endless. And and I think, um, you know, there's been other, uh, some really good studies out there. Keith Johnson has a great book where he, he does a, a more academic survey and chronicles these and like a thousand others. But I think what I realized at that point was um, we've manipulated the Trinity. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's when the, the subtitle for this book just kind of dropped on my head like a pile of bricks is, <laughs> is I just realized it's not just that we're using the Trinity, we're manipulating the Trinity. Whether we, I mean, I, I'm guessing all, you know, these all kinds of individuals aren't going to like hearing that, but um, I think we've manipulated the Trinity for just about every social agenda. Yeah. The, the Trinity has become our social agenda. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating is as you were saying that, I was thinking about the connection between this book, Simply Trinity, and your previous book, None Greater, and I do think you're right in articulating the reality almost in what, you know, Brian Davies, James Dalzell would, would call something like theistic mutualism, where we project onto God, you know, he is he is different than us by varying degree, not by yeah. kind. You know, he's just bigger and better than we are. With that, Whereas 
none greater gets at the problem of doing that on an individual level. Yeah. This book really does that on a societal level. We have done the same thing we do with the the divine life, uh, with the the divine society, as some would like to call it, unfortunately, and, and projecting our societies yeah. onto the society of the Trinity. Uh, yeah, and you know, I, I realize some will say, well, you know, social trinitarianism is is more diverse than that, and and I agree. I mean, there, when you look at so, this is part of the problem, though. Of course, uh, yeah. when you look at social trinitarianism. Um, it's a bit like Jello. It's like trying to <laughs> nail Jello to a wall. Yeah. Um, which made writing this book so difficult because I spent uh, probably way too much time reading social trinitarianism, and uh, just. But but I guess the point I'm trying to make here is not to do an academic study of all the diversity and nuances. Uh, maybe, maybe that's a, another book. Um, <laughs> my point here is to show there is a is a theme. There's yeah. a there's a um, a scarlet. Uh, Read there of continuity. So yes, there may be diversity, but there's a there's a theme of continuity here that runs throughout the 20th century, and I think in large part it explains why we're having the discussions. Yep, that's we're a great point. Today. Absolutely. So what you're describing here is uh, you, you you call it in the book a Trinity drift, and that that's a helpful phrase. You mentioned the Trinity drift a few times, and uh, I think that's a helpful way to think about the evolution of Trinitarianism within. Um, evangelicalism in particular, but really a Christendom as a whole. And to course correct in the book, you advise readers to read scripture along with the dream team. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Since I am well aware of your love of basketball, it was no surprise to see a basketball metaphor very early in the book uh, and running throughout the entire volume. Uh, however, instead of the 1992 dream team of Jordan, Magic, Stockton, Bird, and the whole rest of the gang, you recommend a dream team of theologians, That's ranging right. <laughs> from church fathers, medieval theologians, reformed scholastics, and, and a few others. So let me ask you this question. Why do you think it is important that we read the scriptures and go about the business of doing theology with the help of voices from the past? Well, you, you knew I was going to—I I was hoping you were going to mention this, um, <laughs> because uh, those who, who know me out there know my love for basketball. Uh, of course, I, I have love for other sports, too, but basketball is, is, has a special place <laughs> in, my, in my heart. Um, and I was, I was thinking through uh, the problem, you know, this, this trinity drift, as, as you just mentioned, and, and I do think it's real. I do think there is a trinity, trinity drift that has been happening for some time. It's subtle. It's quiet. But um, it, it's almost like, um, you know, being out to sea and you're having a great time with your, your wife. You know, you're having a, a, you know, on the boat picnic type thing. And you don't realize if you don't put that anchor down, yeah. um, an hour goes by and uh, you don't realize it. But you've, you've drifted. Yep. You've drifted out to sea. And before you, you know it, you, you're not quite sure where you are. Um, so I do think that's real. And I was, I, I was thinking through, well, how do we find our way back home? Um, that's the big question is, uh, how, how do we get back? And of course, uh, I want to take us back to the scriptures because uh, that, is, um, that is our final inspired and errant authority. Uh, but there's no reason for us to reinvent the wheel. That's right. Uh, we live in the 21st century, and I think that's been part of the problem is novelty, this this uh, yes. uh, lust, if I could call it that, this lust for novelty. I think that's one of the reasons why we've ended up in this situation. Um, so what I argue is, well, and this is just a basic, uh, you know, discussion in terms of theological method, but we, we are standing on the shoulders of others, and I think that that's not... Um, 
that's not to, um, uh, well, let me put it this way. I, I think that is uh, a means to humility. Mm-hmm. So I don't say this out of arrogance. I actually say this, and I, I introduce my own story to say we, we, need, we need some humility here to say, okay, we have drifted. If we're going to find our way back to the Scriptures, because everyone's quoting the Scriptures, uh, <laughs> right? No one thinks they're con- you know, contradicting the Scriptures. But if we're going to find our way back, we need help. That's right. And we need a lot of help. And uh, I think if we look at history, we can see the way that the classical tradition interpreted the Bible is such a huge contrast to the way we interpret the Bible today and just assume all kinds of social vocabulary um, that I think is foreign to the Bible and, and, and foreign to the classical tradition. So I, I play off that 1992 Olympic dream team, and, and those who love you know, basketball lovers out there um, will, will immediately know what I'm talking about, you know, figures like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and, of course, Michael Jordan and so many others. And I have a little fun with that. Um, I match them up. It is fun. I match them up with um, different, some of the, the, I mean, I couldn't include everyone. Oh, so. yeah. We but, might need to do a bonus episode one yeah. day and just work through who could have been substitutes for the dream team. That's right. Which ironically, <laughs> right, ironically, that was actually a discussion uh, for the real dream team as, you know, you had yes. that huge controversy over Isaiah Thomas. Of course, yeah. Why wasn't he on it? But, um, you know, th- this is, you know, it is somewhat subjective, but um, <laughs> it's so fun. Uh, so put, put, I, I put on the dream team um, so many individuals from someone like uh, an Athanasius, for example, or a Hillary, all the way to um, um, post-Reformation figures mm-hmm. like uh, John Owen, of course, yeah. and everyone in between, including some medievals uh, who are especially helpful. So uh, all that to say, um, yes, we, uh, we of course go to the Scriptures, but we, we, we shouldn't buy into that Enlightenment uh, mo- modern assumption that, oh, we just do that neutral. That's right. Uh, no, That's we exactly come right. to the scriptures with presuppositions, and they are affecting um, how we interpret the scriptures. We do have a doctrine of God, whether we realize it or not. We are coming to the scriptures with a doctrine of God. Yes. So what I am pleading for, begging for, is that rather than approaching the Trinity with a biblicist mindset that um, treats it in a very formulaic way, a very proof-texting way, that decides whether a doctrine stays or goes based on a particular verse— what I am pleading for is that we actually interpret the scriptures as a whole, but do so with the theological insight and accountability yes. of everything from the Nicene Creed to, to the great tradition itself. Yeah, the, the theological method which insists that a doctrine is only valid in so much as we can gather all the verses together and point to them and summarize them. Well, the problem with that is just about any of the, the theological positions can do that. Yeah, and, and, and really what we're after is, right, I mean, you, you know this— um, we're not just after a, a biblical theology, and there I use it in terms of the discipline itself. We're after a systematic theology. Yes. And so if we're going to do that, there has to be that hermeneutical spiral. That's right, of course. That brings us back around to say, okay, we are interpreting the text, but we're, we need to also do so um, through, the, through a creedal lens yep. um, that itself was, was also tested according to the scriptures. Yeah, biblical doctrine and bibli- biblicism are very different. Yes. <laughs> so, okay, let's let's keep going. I, I want to um, press in a little more on history. Uh, history is an important part, especially in the, the first few chapters of the book. Uh, and this time, instead of pressing into individuals, I want to talk about creeds. 
Uh, you mention a number of creeds in the book, but particularly the Nicene Creed. Mm -hmm. And the Nicene Creed is so important for us to get this conversation right. So let me just ask you, why is the Nicene Creed, this particular creed, so important to Trinitarian conversations? It is so important, and that's one of the reasons why um, I devote an entire chapter to it. Yeah. Uh, it's that important, and um, I, I really hope those listening, uh, pastors especially, will will hear me out here because um, this, the Nicene Creed can be such a help to you, uh, not just in terms of your own grappling with, you know, wrestling with uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, but if you are leading a church, um, goodness, here is a treasure chest of riches sitting before you. Don't shut it. Open it. <laughs> open it. Please Amen. open it. And uh, I think you will also be surprised to find a, a very strong doxological uh, tone. But to answer your question, you know, when we go back to the fourth century, uh, the fathers, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity was first and foremost on their mind. It, it took center stage. And uh, we don't have to go into all these details, but a lot of it has to do with the, the rise of Arius and the Arians. Yeah. Um, you know, we were just talking about uh, kind of a crude biblicism. That is what defines them, which I find really ironic because uh, sometimes I want to say to individuals today, do, do you understand, even though you may have different conclusions, do you understand you're approaching the scriptures in the same way that someone like Arius yeah, did? Yeah, your method's the same. Your method's the same. Um, and so Arius would come to the scriptures, um, especially, you know, a passage like Proverbs 8. And rather than reading it in light of the whole canon and 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 instead of reading it even Christologically in, in light of, you know, how the New Testament picks up Proverbs 8 and wisdom language, um, Arius, uh, you know, read it through a very strict biblicist lens in which um, he could not conceive of, of the Son, as, well, he could not conceive um, of the Son as, as someone who was eternal, but it really was deeper than that. It wasn't just that um, the issue of eternity, it was for Arius, uh, he looked to the monarchy of the Father, and for him, uh, if there was, if we were to ask Arius, okay, well, then what explains the unity between, say, the Father and the Son? For Arius, uh, it would not be a unity of being uh, or essence. It would instead be a unity of will or right. wills, uh, which, of course, subordinates the Son yep. immediately. And, um, and, and furthermore, um, Arius couldn't just could not fathom, especially in light of the incarnation, could not fathom um, attributing uh, the divine classical attributes of God, everything from immutability to impassibility to simplicity, on and on. Uh, he he could not fathom contributing these yes. uh, attributing these to the Son, which also posed another another big issue. And so the the real issue there. You know, we often go back to this debate, debate and talk about, well, you know, the deity of the Son, true, but there's really a Trinitarian issue, and that is how did he understand unity? And it had a lot to do with his biblicist reading of Scripture. Mm. By the time you get to, you know, and here I'm, you know, painting with a huge broad brush, but <laughs> uh, so forgive me, but um, by the time we get to the, the, the Council of Nicaea in 325 and, and then the Nicene Creed, as we call it, we see a very different approach, uh, one that um, certainly understands unity as a unity of, of essence and being. Now, the, the reason for that, though, in terms of the Son, is when they talked about the Son, 
and you see this in the Nicene Creed throughout, they had a lot to say about this doctrine of eternal generation, that from all eternity, the Father communicates the one simple undivided essence to the Son, or to use you know John's language, the Son is uh, begotten, he's eternally begotten from the Father's essence uh, from all eternity. And you'll notice that um, in the in in the fourth century, both Nicaea and then the fathers who then went on to def- to defend uh, a pro-Nicene understanding of the Trinity, they then argued that well, if if this is the case, then eternal generation not only distinguishes the Son as Son. I mean, that's that is what it yes. means for Him to be a Son. You know, when we <laughs> talk about well, what do these these names mean? Why does Scripture give us these names, Father and Son? This is the reason. Uh, because to be a son is to be begotten. Of course, when we're talking about God, this is an eternal deity, and so we we have to think of this analogically. But as they turned to this doctrine of eternal generation, my point's this, they not only saw eternal generation as that which distinguish, that which alone distinguishes the son, but they also saw eternal generation as that which safeguarded mm-hmm. the equality of the son. Uh, and so you have someone like Athanasius, for example, who goes to great lengths to persuade others that, uh, no, this is the son who is begotten from the father's very essence. And on that basis, he then would make all kinds of other arguments, some textual, some theological, to defend the son's of, uh, tr- uh, true and full equality with the father. So, you know, I would just suggest to our listeners, you know, as you're listening to, and we, we can follow up with this if you want and talk about, you know, um, the Cappadocians as yeah, well, but yeah. I would just suggest to our listeners as you're reading the Nicene Creed, uh, put it back in context yep. and you'll see some of these truths pop out. Yeah, I actually do want to go to the, the, the Cappadocians. I think that's a, that's a helpful move in the conversation because not only do we have you know, creedal formulations that help us read the scriptures faithfully and and come to terms with what's happening here uh, in the biblical data with the Trinity. But we also have, again, individuals that help, and the Cappadocians really are helpful. Uh, the Gregories and the gang. Yes. <laughs> uh, the Cappadocians <laughs> are so helpful. They aid especially in Trinitarian grammar. Mm-hmm. And so I actually want to press in there. So you use, and I love this, um, because the book really is, in terms of audience, it's somewhere between lay lay readers and academics and i love that space it's an it's kind of an awkward space to write in but i think you've done it well and i'm, I'm not going to become you know a bestseller or <laughs> yeah, that's right no uh, i'm not going to hit not. the the bestseller list anytime soon the moment you use the word usia you <laughs> forsook that possibility I, you know uh, it's it, you have to at some point decide you know am i going to be a, a billionaire or, or a theologian or a theologian <laughs> Yeah, you uh you Don't ask my wife which which one she's happy with, but <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It is what it is. <laughs> you introduce a number of trinitarian grammar um and a lot of trinitarian concepts that I think really are helpful in keeping in mind as we make our way through trinitarian conversation. So, for example, let me just list a few. You you talk about relations of origin, of paternity, generation, spiration, you talk about inseparable operations, you talk about mm-hmm. again the notion of usia with homoousia, homoousia. You talk about unity of will, unity of essence. You talk about divine simplicity, especially is important in this book. And the Cappadocians really are helpful in all of that. And so let me just let me just ask a question, kind of a broad question to set you up to talk about just general Trinitarian grammar. 
Mm. Why should we pay attention to what the Cappadocians are saying and what these concepts mean? Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned the Cappadocians uh, because it gives me a, a little bit of an excuse to to quote them if I can. Um, <laughs> if to our listeners, if you've never, I, I'm assuming our listeners have probably heard of someone like Athanasius, but uh, if you've not heard of or read the Cappadocians, well, uh, they can be an excellent place to begin mm-hmm. for what you're talking about, Ronnie, which is this the importance of Trinitarian grammar. In my book, uh, you know, the title is simply Trinity, and I play off of that to talk about both simplicity and the distinctions within the Trinity. And so I focus first on the simply part, and I argue there, uh, really standing on the shoulders of the Cappadocians, that unless we understand simplicity, uh, well, Trinity really won't make much sense at all. Let me Mm. just share with you, this is from Gregory of Nazianzus. And he's responding to those uh, subordinationists, uh, those Arians in particular, who said the Son had a different will than the Father. And he says in response, we have one Godhead, so we have one will. And here he's, he's, um, he's basically saying if there, is one, if there is but one essence, so too must there be one will. Otherwise, the persons are divided, which would be tritheism, or subordinated, which would be Arianism. And then he has this this nugget here. He says, (laughs) for I cannot see how that which is common to two, here he's talking about father and son, Mm -hmm. can be said to belong to one alone, the father. This statement's so revealing because uh, it shows us, and here he's, he's, he's talking about something like power as well, because he goes on to say, for one is not more and another less God, nor is one before and another after, nor are they divided in will or parted in power. And then he, he concludes here with a punch on simplicity itself. He says, but each of these persons possesses unity, mm. uh, capital U, uh, not less uh, with that which is united to it than with itself by reason of the identi- identity of essence and power. Mm. I think that is a corrective to our own day. Yeah. Here, he, and then he's going to go on to talk about uh, the doctrine of inseparable operations, uh, which means that because uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence, they then, uh, well, their external works in creation and providence, uh, they, they are one in action as well. But the point I'm trying to make here is that these persons are not parts that somehow make up God. Uh, these persons, each person, we could say, is a subsistence of that same divine essence. One of the ways that uh, the, the pro-Nicene tradition uh, said this sort of thing, uh, well, they would speak of the essence as simple, undivided among the persons, uh, indivisible, and then they would say this one essence then subsists in Father, Son, and Spirit, or sometimes uh, they would say this one essence has three modes of subsistence, and there they would then introduce paternity, filiation, inspiration. Uh, so when, when we talk about the Trinity, one of the first things we have to say is we're not speaking of the persons as individuals, individual centers of consciousness and will. This is the one simple and undivided essence that subsists in these persons. Now, that said, with simplicity underlined, highlighted, circled, (laughs) (laughs) uh, put in bold, uh, at that point, we can properly then also understand what distinguishes the persons. 
And they are very, very emphatic. There is one thing, one thing alone that distinguishes the persons in, in Scripture. And I, I just alluded to it a minute ago. We might call these eternal relations of origin. Uh, what does that mean? Well, uh, it may sound like a fancy theological, maybe even a foreign phrase to some, but actually, if, if we think through it, it, it uh, is quite self-explanatory. We're talking here about uh, the origin, say, of the Son or the Spirit, uh, but of course, these are the divi- this is the divine trinity, the eternal, immutable, infinite trinity we are referring to. So these are eternal, mm-hmm. eternal, and they are their relations. So we're not talking here about relationships, like in a psychological, uh, you know, 20th century sense. We're talking about their relations of origin. So what are those? Well, the first thing we have to say is that when we speak of the Father, um, he does not have... Uh, he does not have an origin. He is uh, unbegotten, they said. He is without, he is the principle without principle. Um, when we refer to the Son, well, we call him Son because he is from his Father. Uh, that's why we call Father, Father and Son, Son. Of course, this is from eternity. So uh, they argued, the Cappadocians argued, that the Son is begotten, but he's begotten from the Father, from the Father's essence from all eternity. And then likewise, when we come to the Spirit, uh, the Spirit is not begotten. He is spirated, uh, or or at times they would use the language of procession. Uh, In other words, the Spirit proceeds or is spirated from the Father and the Son. These alone distinguish the persons, and that's crucial to underline, bold, highlight, all that sort of thing. (laughs) Again, this is the simply Trinity part of our discussion, because uh, if we introduce anything else, we then are in the danger of uh, creating, say, hierarchy within God mm-hmm. or confusing the persons, like uh, is the tendency with, say, Sibelianism. Uh, different phrases have been used in the, in the pro-Nicene tradition. I, I've introduced two of them, modes of subsistence or existence, eternal relations of origin. Uh, personal properties is sometimes another one that gets used. But regardless, uh, the, the point here is not that, well, when we, when we are speaking of these distinctions, the point is we haven't actually ever left or abandoned divine simplicity. And this is where I think the Cappadocians have a real contribution. Uh, and, and it's not just them. In fact, it's many, including Athanasius and many after them. You can look at uh, Thomas Aquinas is fantastic on this in which they argue that, well, if, if this vocabulary is true to the biblical witness, then when we talk about, say, the Son, for example, we're not, on the one hand, uh, segregating essence over here and persons over here as if we can put these in these you know, neat categories and, and uh, you know, uh, really se- separate the two. No, in fact, they argue, well, when we even speak of eternal generation— how do we speak of it? Well, the Son is begotten from the Father's essence. And this language appears early um, in uh, 325, in fact, and it's picked up later by the Cappadocians. But of course, it's then picked up by not just the West, uh, but the East in later centuries as well. So we, it's not as if, oh, this is a Western emphasis on divine simplicity. No, it's, it's very much in the East as well. Uh, the point, though, that they are trying to make is that, well, these persons, they, there is an equality there that, that we cannot compromise be, 
because when we speak of these eternal relations of origin, we've never left that discussion of divine simplicity. Yes, we're distinguishing them, but we always remember they are subsistences of, of the divine essence itself. So that, that is a crucial point to make whenever we're, we're referring to the pro-Nicene tradition. I think today, and we, we can go in this direction next if you want, but I think today in light of social Trinitarianism, this gets completely yep. missed. At times, it's just outright rejected. Yeah, yeah, I do want to go that exact direction. So, so thank you for that. And I, I will just add that really those those grammar pieces of the Cappadocians and others, as you mentioned, Aquinas and you know a number of other theologians, uh, just for listeners who are unfamiliar with those grammatical concepts, they can offer such a helpful handrail mm. as you begin to talk about the Trinity, just something to hold on to. Um, that can be very helpful. So let's let's move again back to the concept of social Trinitarianism. Uh, so you you talk about Trinity drift again. That's a very important concept mm-hmm. to the book, and I think it's important to come back here for one more question because you talk about uh, not just there being a social Trinitarianism of the past, but there being social Trinitarianism today in our day, and you actually have a few marks to identify. Uh, social Trinitarianism. And so I'd love for you to uh, just name a few of those marks, talk about a few of those marks yeah. for our listeners, how they can identify social Trinitarianism today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the difficulties in the 20th century, let me just say this as a, of, of, as a word of just kind of introduction to, the, to these marks. One of the, the difficulties is that in the 20th century, there was all this excitement over uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. And you had a lot of Carls come on the scene, you know, <laughs> Carl Rahner, Carl Barth, and many others. And, uh, and then you had uh, a number of, uh, well, very influential um, modern theologians. You think of someone like Jurgen Moltmann, but also uh, others such as Leonardo Boff. Um, it's a, I, I'm here just scratching the surface, yeah. right? Um, when we talk about modern theology, it's a huge, huge camp. Uh, what what exactly was happening? Well, some have said, well, there was a renaissance of of the Trinity. Uh, historians more, more recently, though, you think of someone like Lewis Ayers uh, or a theologian like Stephen Holmes. Uh, I'm I'm certainly not the first one to to make this argument. Um, historians and theologians alike have made the point. Well, what kind of renaissance? Uh, what what kind of Trinity exactly was being resurrected? Was it the Trinity, the, the biblical and Nicene doctrine of the Trinity, or was it something else? And that is a crucial question. Uh, both, of, both of them argue actually it was something else. Uh, it, and here we start to get into uh, the waters of social Trinitarianism. Mm-hmm. This is crucial to understand because in the 20th century and even in, in our own century, the 21st century, we sometimes just assume Oh, our own day in our own century uh, is just uh, you know regurgitating biblical trinitarianism. And I one one of the major claims of my book is no. <laughs> in fact, we we've drifted uh, considerably uh, to the point of even manipulating the Trinity. Now, to understand why that bold claim can be made, I think something has to be said about Protestant liberalism first of all. Uh, with Protestant liberalism early on. I mean, we could go as far back even as, you know, a father like uh, Schleiermacher, 
the argument is made that, well, the, the starting point, the epistemological starting point must be that absolute feeling, that, that, that feeling of, of self-conscious dependence on, on the divine. And uh, this, in what I would call an inward-looking uh, starting point, had many consequences. One of them had to do with the Trinity. Uh, if this is the starting point, and even even a uh, a litmus test then for what theological conversations can happen, or what even doctrines are going to be considered, the Trinity is certainly going to drop way down on the list. And one of the reasons for that is that well, the Trinity, if we're talking about uh, all these distinctions we've mentioned, all these this Trinitarian vocabulary, uh, going back to the Cappadocians. Well, this is not something that originates from that feeling of absolute dependence, that self-consciousness. And if that's the case, then not only is an Orthodox Trinitarianism uh, pretty far from uh, our own inward consciousness, but to make matters worse, it then appears to be irrelevant to uh, Protestant liberalism's, um, their, their program for ethics in society and social, well, actually, when we go back to the first half of the 20th century, it's not a surprise then that when we look at, say, the social gospel movement, the Trinity, well, it's criticized, the Orthodox Nicene Trinity, that is, is criticized because it's considered irrelevant Mm -hmm. uh, to the ethics of a, a Protestant liberal understanding of the kingdom of God. Well, in here, I'm you know I'm I'm painting with a broad brush here uh, for the sake of time. But when this Renaissance, air quotes, uh, this Renaissance uh, then erupts, there's this excitement that well, perhaps the Trinity is relevant after all. Perhaps the Trinity is not only relevant for our theological discussions, but perhaps it's even relevant and even the program for uh, our social concerns. And so uh, from, I would point to Moltmann as an example of this, um, in which there's a conflation uh, and a collapse between the triune God in and of himself and the economy of salvation. There's a collapse there uh, in which Moltmann then begins to redefine the Trinity, not in the terms that we have, but rather as a society. Mm-hmm. And it's so strongly emphasized that this society then and the, the, the persons, uh, well, in some presentations of social Trinitarianism, uh, the persons become their own centers of consciousness and will. For Moltmann and, and many others, um, this redefinition of the Trinity in terms of a society then becomes the, the, really the convenient but very, very ideal paradigm uh, for social agendas. Uh, And for Moltmann, he's very specific about what those are. Everything from uh, feminism uh, to socialism in terms of uh, a societal government. Well, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, I I could go on and on and on about countless social Trinitarians. They sometimes are diverse and have significant differences from one another. But they also have uh, these core differences. And here I, I name, I list uh, about eight of them. 
Now, a bit of a qualification here. I recognize that, and I say this in the book, that social Trinitarianism is diverse. But that's not, sometimes I hear that said as almost an excuse as, okay, can't touch this, to, to quote <laughs> MC Hammer. Um, in other words, because it's diverse, um, well, you, we can't ever critique it. And I, I want to say, I don't care if it's uh, jello. I'm going to try to nail it to the wall. Uh, because I do think, I do think that there is um, a, a running theme, or, or maybe we could say certain characteristics that, yes, maybe not all social Trinitarians hold to every single one of them. No, but nonetheless, uh, some or all of these do characterize social Trinitarianism as an ism and are, are actually quite informative. Uh, what are these? Well, number one, the starting point, or at least the emphasis, is not so much on divine simplicity, but the three persons. Some will go so far as to reject divine simplicity altogether. Um, in fact, even when we, you know, I mentioned Moltmann, Moltmann, at the end of his, his systematic, when he finally uh, does address the Trinity, uh, he starts, he's so critical of uh, Nicene concepts like simplicity that he then starts to flirt even with what we would have, would have considered certain heresies, uh, including uh, Sabellianism or even Unitarianism. Uh, now, he's a strong example of that, but others, you know, even if they don't go that direction, there's a bit of a suspicion towards simplicity. Uh, number two, uh, Trinity is redefined, as I mentioned, as a society or community, sometimes analogous to a human society or even a paradigm for hum human society. Uh, three persons are redefined as uh, three centers of consciousness and will. Now, sometimes this is done uh, explicitly, and I can, th there are even many uh, examples in our own day uh, where this is the case among even evangelical philosophers and theologians. Uh, sometimes it's more indirectly by, by nature of you know, the consequence of what they're saying. Uh, number four, persons are redefined according to their relationships. Uh, here the focus is on mutuality, societal interaction. Usually uh, at this point, well, this leads to number five, because at this point they bring in the, the concept of love to say unity is redefined as interpersonal relationships of love between the persons. Um, so a redefinition of what we would call perichoresis. And then six, there's a large overlap, sometimes even a collapse of uh, imminent and economic. God in and of himself and uh, God towards uh, salvation history. Seven, I've hinted at this, there, there's a tendency to set the East over against the West and appeal to the Eastern Fathers in particular. And then finally, eight, social, the social trinity becomes the paradigm for social theory. Whether it's ecclesiology, uh, there's some fascinating discussions between social trinitarians as to whether a social trini trinity should justify a high church model or whether it should, uh, you know, justify or or even be the paradigm for something more congregational, politics. I've mentioned politics, but also gender, uh, gender discussions as well, and so so much more. All that to say, I and you kind of mentioned this. I don't think that social trinitarianism is something. You know, this is our tendency as evangelicals to think, well, it's something that's just out there. Uh, of the past generation. No, I think it's alive and well. Mm -hmm. And even though we don't recognize this to be the case, I would say evangelicals have been heavily influenced by social Trinitarianism. We see this in all kinds of ways. Uh, you think of uh, a number of evangelical Christian philosophers today, 
who will be so bold as to say things like, in God, there are three distinct centers of self-consciousness, each with its proper intellect and will. And at times they'll go on to say, this is really uh, at the very, um, the very center of what it means then for the Trinity to be Trinity. Um, evangelical theologians, I don't think are exempt from this either. Um, we see tendencies going back even to, you know, someone like a Stanley Grenz, who's, who does, uh, go in the direction of the, of, of redefining the Trinity in societal terms. Uh, and then more recently, even in the reform, uh, the, kind of the new Calvinist reformed camp, um, with, uh, EFS or ERAS, uh, individuals like Wayne Grudem, for example, um, defining the Trinity as ro- in terms of roles and relationships, and then even introducing a functional subordination, and then making that strate- that strategic move, right, to say this is a paradigm. Then, uh, in this case, for gender, in, in his case, yeah, he wants right. to comp- argue for complementarianism. Um, it's interesting that. Others are doing the same thing, but for some version of egalitarianism. But they're both working. They wouldn't want to admit this, but they're both working with some type of of social uh, definition of the Trinity. I could go on. Um, I would just encourage uh, listeners to really dig into that chapter, chapter 3, it's, you know, it it was so hard to write because it's just the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) I can only imagine. Yeah, that th- that's all super helpful, and those markers become uh, really great filters as we're reading Trinitarian literature uh, to to have some kind of awareness. So, with everything we've talked about, we're we're nearing the nearing the end here. It feels like a really big problem, mm. if I can just be honest. Uh, it's a bit depressing. That's, it is. That's how I. That's how I felt. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, it can feel depressing. The problem feels bigger than me, you know, mm. bigger than my circle of influence, what have you. So let me just, I want to pose back to you a question that you pose in the book. And uh, it's the beginning of, of part two of the book. And you simply ask, how do we find our way home? Yeah. And I think that's a good question given the bigness of the problem. Yeah. I put it that way because at the start of the book, I talk about Trinity drift. And I use that illustration of, you know, being out, uh, you know, maybe on a romantic date with with your wife or something like that. And uh, the boat, uh, you know, you're just enjoying, you know, maybe some Kansas City barbecue. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just having a great time and you don't realize it. Hours go by and you realize, wait a minute, we've we've drifted. And goodness, where are we? that I, I think something like that has happened to one degree or another. Um, I think that is uh, undebatable. Uh, but the, the the huge question then is, well, how do we how do we find our way back? How do we find our way back home? And uh, yeah, in part two, uh, that's where I turn the corner to to say, okay, in light of all of this Trinity drift, um, how exactly do we put back on the table? Um, a doctrine of the Trinity that is both biblical and Nicene. And I begin by talking about revelation itself, uh, because the tendency is to conflate. Uh, that's been the tendency in the last 20th century. If if there's one one huge danger, I, I would boil it down to that one word, conflation. There's a tendency to conflate uh, imminent and economic God in himself uh, with the economy of salvation. And 
if we're going to uh, avoid that danger, I think we have to first of all define, well, how is the Trinity revealed to us? Uh, instead of uh, approaching the text, I think our tendency as evangelicals especially, we don't necessarily realize this, but our tendency is to approach the text either like rationalists or pietists. We approach the text like rationalists uh, when we're just uh, treating the Trinity like a formula. And then uh, we, we couple that with a very strong dose of, of a narrow biblicism uh, in which we then are looking for a formulaic uh, answer in Scripture. You know, where is that chapter and verse? When we go about the Trinity that way, uh, well, our entire discussion so far is mute. Uh, all, the, all of this vocabulary, all of a sudden, that sounds speculative, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it sounds as if that's uh, extra-scriptural rather than faithful to Scripture. Um, and then if we can't rationalize a particular concept, if it doesn't make sense, to, if we can't find a proof text, or if it just doesn't make sense to us, well, then it has to be modified or even thrown out the window. The other tendency is, is in a more pietistic direction where we, uh, we look at the Trinity and we dismiss it, the, the Orthodox Trinity, that is, and we dismiss it from the start of our pilgrimage because we say, well, this is pure speculation, it has nothing to do with with, it's not relevant, right? It's not relevant to the Christian life, uh, to what I'm experiencing, which actually sounds quite a bit like Protestant liberalism. Uh, I, I warn against both of those tendencies, and I argue that, well, we need to actually take a more organic approach. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the Trinity is revealed to us progressively in Scripture. I love, you know, Warfield's illustration about walking into a room that's dimly lit not quite seen or not seeing at all what's there. And then as the lights sort of start to, to come on, he begins to see all the furniture that's in the room. Uh, that was there the whole time. It wasn't that, oh, all of a sudden it's here and it wasn't before. No, it was there the whole time. Nevertheless, uh, we begin to see it in, in the full light. And, you know, it's no, no illustration's perfect here, but, but I think what Warfield is trying to point out is that when the Scripture reveals the Trinity to us, it does so across the scope of redemptive history. It doesn't just uh, reveal to us in you know, the beginning of Genesis, uh, our doctrine of the Trinity. It's revealed progressively. And as we come closer and closer to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see it, we, we, the lights begin to come on, so to speak. And that should change the way we then talk about Trinity um, when we see the Father, for example, send the Son to be our suffering servant by virtue of his humanity in the incarnation, well, that then is fitting. That corresponds then to that eternal relation of origin. That, well, this gospel, well, it, that shows us, it reveals to us that this Son is from the Father from all eternity, begotten from the Father's essence from everlasting. And likewise, we could say something similar when we come to the Spirit at Pentecost. Why is it that the Spirit is sent from the Father and the Son, just as Jesus promised? It's because, this is fitting as well, because the Spirit is spirated, proceeds from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So whether it's the names that are given to us in Scripture, whether it's the missions that then uh, reveal those, those processions, or uh, whether it's it, it, at times it may be uh, reflections like in John's gospel on specific texts that do bring to light, say, a doctrine like eternal generation, what we begin to notice is that, well, 
the Trinity is revealed to us, but not in the way we would necessarily assume. And uh, early on, when I first came into, you know, encountered um, formulations of the Trinity, I started to notice this because um, as I reflected on how I was saved, uh, well, the Holy Spirit uh, breathed new spiritual life into me so that my eyes were opened to Christ and I could actually, by his grace, come to, um, come to the Father uh, and have right standing. And, well, goodness, that's, that's a very different uh, experience of Trinitarian revelation than the typical formulaic mm-hmm. way we, we tend to just proof, our text, proof text our way to a doctrine of the Trinity. Now, all that said, um, I think that the, the warning I would issue here is that when we uh, look at how the Trinity is revealed, we have to be very, very careful we don't conflate uh, say, our experience uh, of the Trinity, or even how the Trinity is um, revealed, especially in the Incarnation, with God in and of himself. We sure. can't conflate that imminent and economic distinction. Um, we love to talk about how we're gospel-centered, and amen to that, right? But at the same time, um, we, have to, we have to be aware that, well, if we start assuming if we start assuming that all God is is all we see in history, well, we've just abandoned his infinite, incomprehensible um, identity. Um, all that to say, uh, if we're going to avo- avoid conflation, we can't project uh, something we see, for example, whether it be suffering during the incarnation by virtue of Christ's humanity, whether it be Christ um, in his humility obeying uh, the law or, or the Father. We can't project those things back into divinity itself as if these are imminent realities, uh, suffering and subordination. Uh, that, that would, uh, well, it would be disastrous yeah. then for God in and of himself, apart from creation, apart from salvation history altogether. Yeah, yeah, that, that is so helpful and such such a more wise way to go about even the process of theology that's not so formulaic and proof texting, as you said, but more um, dwelling on in Christian wisdom how how the Trinity organically reveals himself. Um, I, I think that's so good for our help, our, our listeners. And you, you've mentioned a word a couple of times now in a few of these answers, and that word is relevant, uh, the, mm. the idea of the Trinity being relevant. And I think just as a, you know, kind of an aside here that that even that concept is a little bit strange, you know, when it comes yeah. to Trinitarianism, because one, I, the Trinity is the most relevant thing in the world, right? Yeah. Uh, we can't think about anything more relevant than, than Trinitarianism. One, it, dwelling on these Trinitarian concepts and these grammar pieces that we've talked about, uh, there's just a beauty and coherence. Mm. Uh, we we can see as we sit at the feet of Scripture and at the feet of Christian history and at the feet of the creeds and saints gone by that there is a coherence here that's just absolutely beautiful. And and second, there's just I, I want to challenge listeners as well to just evaluate the usefulness of the term useful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I'm becoming less and less convinced that uh, that is a helpful category in which we think about um, the value of a theological mm. concept. You know, it, it might not be that it changes the way that you, you know, walk your dog during the day. <laughs> However, 
there is nothing more useful or relevant than getting a clear picture of who our triune God is. And especially if the way we do that is by dwelling on the organic revelation of Scripture. Uh, that, that is massively relevant or, or useful. Yeah. So just, just in there, um, I, I want to give you a chance for any final words before we kick it to um, kind of a, a, a brief outro. You know, uh, I, what you just said is, is so crucial. Um, I, I think in our pragmat, pragmatic right. uh, day, uh, we, that seeps into our theology. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I would just say as a final word, um, yeah, if we, if we go to the Trinity saying, well, how is this relevant? Uh, how is this useful? Uh, we end up in that going, well, social Trinitarianism will be exactly. very, very tempting for us because uh, ultimately we want to make the Trinity relevant for our, my social agenda, whatever that may be. That's very dangerous. Yes. Uh, when you go back to earlier Christians, to the fathers, uh, patristic and medieval, they loved to contemplate. Yes. Maybe that's the right word, right? It's not speculation. It's contemplation. They love to contemplate God just for the sake of contemplation itself or to put, you know, to use Packer's phrase, knowing God. Yeah, amen. And so, you know, John is a great example of this, right? And in, in the opening of his gospel, uh, evangelicals today seem to have a bit of an allergy to metaphysics. John doesn't. Yes. <laughs> uh, he, he starts off his gospel by reflecting on who is this word from eternity. Yes, he's going to get to the gospel in John 1, uh, 14, 15, and following. But before he does that, he needs to first establish who God is in and of himself, who this triune God is in and of himself, apart from creation, even apart from salvation. Now, that may uh, feel uncomfortable to listeners because that means that it's not all about you. It's not all about me. <laughs> uh, and, and believe it or not, uh, he is uh, Father, Son, Spirit. They are Trinity, whether or not we exist, whether or not, they say, whether or not we're even saved. Now, that being said, like you mentioned, yes, uh, and John, dis- John uh, practices this, right? As he starts to transition to what has happened in salvation history, well, certainly in that sense, well, who the, the Word is in this case, this Word from the Father, uh, who this Word is has, well, enormous implications mm-hmm. then for the gospel itself and for our salvation. Uh, I think that if we approach it uh, in that in John's vein, uh, that guards us then from wanting to, as as I you know say on the cover, manipulate That's the right. Trinity, whether we intend to or not, manipulate the Trinity in order to make it relevant to whatever my particular uh, you know my particular cause may be. Yeah, if you come to Trinitarian studies bent towards pragmatism, you'll likely yeah. end up in social Trinitarianism. But if you come to Trinitarian studies bent towards, and this is a tease for another episode, uh, if you come to Trinitarian studies bent towards worship, yeah. by the grace of God, you might just end up with Christian wisdom. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Baird, thank you so much for your time today. And as a reader of the book, uh, let me just thank you for your efforts for from this volume. Uh, listeners, this is just the first of a number of episodes that Dr. Barrett is going to be talking about the new book, Simply Trinity, which I would remind you is available now for pre-order, both on Amazon, bakerpublishinggroup.com, and and probably a few other places. So be sure to tune in 
uh, for the next few episodes as well as Dr. Barrett continues to dive into wonderful conversations of our triune God. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.